You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Today, we have a wonderful podcast lined up for you, a wonderful show. We're going to be joined by Carrie McDonald. She is an expert on unschooling and homeschooling. We're going to talk about what unschooling is, self-directed learning, and why it is really building a lot of momentum. Uh, A lot of it has to do with the fact that people are recognizing some of the ills of government schooling, especially after COVID. But a lot of it has to do with just this general transformation where people, I think, are becoming more comfortable stepping into their freedom, right? A lot of old institutions are failing and people are taking it back to the roots of self-direction and autonomy, which is great. It's great. And uh, Carrie McDonald actually is going to be one of the presenters at the Free the Children Homeschooling Summit, which is taking place July 14th, starts at 11 a.m. Central Daylight Time. You can register for free at livefree.academy slash free the children. That's live free.academy slash free the children. Without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Carrie on. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, John. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've uh, read some of your articles and seen some of your podcasts. So I'm super excited to be talking to you. I have two kiddos. They're nine and 10 and they've never touched foot in a government school. Well, they went to one of their cousin's schools to watch (laughs) their basketball game, but Definitely haven't been enrolled in school, um, and we've been homeschooling and unschooling, kind of a blend, and it's been a pretty pretty wild journey. It has definitely been one of the more challenging things that that I've embarked upon, but it's it's critical and important. So maybe you can start by introducing yourself to the audience and share how you came about to be an advocate for homeschooling and unschooling. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a contributor at Forbes, and the host of the new podcast, liberatedpodcast.com, which looks at education issues from a free market perspective uh, and looking at specifically uh, moving beyond government schooling to other kinds of private education options, including homeschooling and unschooling, but um, increasingly micro schools and pandemic pods that have evolved into learning pods and various virtual learning options and just a whole host of education possibilities that are being invented and that would continue to be imagined as we kind of move beyond government schooling government schooling. And so my interest in education and specifically in education innovation and alternatives really began um, or was sort of rooted in my background uh, studying economics as an undergraduate. And that really opened my eyes to the ways in which um, the government creates a monopoly in terms of education and runs and dictates, um, you know, how schooling and education and learning should be. And that led me to then think about, you know, how can we expand choice for more families and how can uh, there, you know, how can we imagine other ways of learning? And so as an undergraduate, and this was, you know, 20 years ago, um, I had a chance to shadow a homeschooling family. 
And this was completely new and different for me. I had attended K to 12 public schools and never, you know, knew a homeschooler, never um, knew much about homeschooling. This was the late 1990s. Homeschooling had just become legally recognized in the U.S. Uh, by the mid 1990s. So it was still relatively new. The U.S. Department of Education first began counting homeschoolers uh, in 1998 and counted 850,000 at the time. So it was still not kind of the mainstream education option that it's become in the 21st century and definitely uh, over the past couple of years. But that experience of shadowing that family um, really opened my eyes to the ways in which um, learning could occur successfully and uh, competently outside of a conventional classroom. And what was really interesting about that experience was at the same time that I was shadowing this homeschooling family, I was also doing a student teaching practicum in a local public elementary school with kind of the same age students as the homeschooling family. And so for the first time, I saw kind of side by side, really, um, the differences and, and stark contrast between learning in a kind of age-segregated, standardized classroom environment with, uh, you know, a, a standardized curriculum and a static handful of teachers and this, you know, kind of cohort of students that you would um, be sorted with and, and just kind of the lack of freedom and autonomy that came from that uh, in contrast, again, to what I was seeing in the homeschooling family with this sort of authentic immersion in the people, places and things in the community. And so that really was what triggered my interest in kind of continuing to apply an economic uh, framework to uh, education policy. I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard became interested in the school choice movement, which at the time, if you were at all interested in kind of education choice or freedom, uh, charter schools were, you know, kind of the only game in town uh, then, and I think probably to some extent still at education schools across the country. So I did spend some time um, researching and, and focusing on charter schools, but always was really more interested in kind of schooling alternatives and, and real innovative education models. And so, you know, fast forward a decade later, had my own children. Uh, my husband and I decided, you know, we're deciding what we wanted to do for their education and realized that if we had sent them to a school, even uh, a private school, that their learning would contract, that here they had access to um, you know, this this community we live in, Cambridge, Massachusetts, lots of museums and libraries and historic sites and all kinds of resources around us. And we felt that if we had sent them to school, that they, that learning would contract. And instead, we wanted to kind of keep that uh, expansive, immersive learning going for them. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. That's quite the background. And um, really impressed by the credentials and all the work that you've done. And of course, the experience as a parent really is uh, perhaps the, grass, the best teacher and helps people to be informed about what's really going on. Let's start with the problem, right? Because this is a solutions focused podcast, but I also I like to lay the foundation of why people are so drawn towards these alternatives, right? So can you share a little bit more about what some of the things you mm -hmm. saw that really stuck out to you when you contrasted the homeschool family with government schools? And then maybe we could just get into compulsory education. And I'm sure you're familiar with the background of government school and how it all started in the U.S. So uh, could you share some of that with the listeners? Because that's something that we're going to go into 
during the summit that we have coming up, which we're going to be presenting at. We're going to present the problem and then we're going to dive deep on solutions. But I think a lot of parents that value liberty and freedom may not be fully aware with really what's going on in these government schools. Yeah, you know, so I think um, there's sort of two issues there. There's government schooling and kind of the government being in charge of the ways in which children learn. Uh, my podcast episode this week is with C. Bradley Thompson from Clemson University, and he, you know, talks about really declaring independence from government schooling and moving beyond that uh, coercive system of having governments here in the U.S. or anywhere around the world deciding uh, what children should learn and what, what they should know and how that's such a scary proposition. I completely agree with him. Um, so I think that that is one piece that we need to kind of move away from government schooling because government shouldn't be in the schooling business. There should be a complete separation of school and state that it should be a you know, kind of thriving free market in education for parents to choose from. So that's one piece of it. And then I think you know, within kind of a subset of, of private education, you know, my kind of primary objective is to make sure that there are you know, a whole host of options for families in the private sector in terms of education so that you can decide uh, what is the educational philosophy and approach that works for you, that kind of is aligned with your values and your expectations, uh, or that you know, fits your child best. And that, you know, could be something like Montessori education or Waldorf or a classical model of education or, or conventional private schools. Um, there, you know, the whole variety of ways to approach education and, and a bunch of philosophies to choose from. And I think that we should have that kind of dynamic, vibrant, free market education for parents to choose from. That said, I'd like to sort of persuade more families to think about self-directed education as um, sort of the, I would argue, preferable educational approach for the realities of the 21st century. And so the way in which self-directed education or unschooling work that I talk a lot about in the unschooled book is essentially saying, you know, young children are naturally curious and creative. They're always questioning and exploring, asking why, wanting to know how things work and why they work that way. And that process of creativity and curiosity and exuberance for learning um, doesn't just sort of magically go away when a child hits school age. Um, that is really smothered by a kind of conventional coercive system of schooling. And so if we think about the kind of human qualities that um, increasingly distinguish us from robots and artificial intelligence, you know, what is it about human intelligence that's so superior to artificial intelligence? It's things like creativity, curiosity, inventiveness, and entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and those are the qualities that systematically get crushed in a co conventional coercive system of schooling, public or private, really, where young people are kind of taught to be passive learners. They're taught uh, to favor obedience over originality and conformity over creativity. And it's sort of the exact opposite of what we'd want uh, young people as they grow into adults to be able to do today, which is, again, distinguish themselves from robots by keeping alive those qualities of creativity, curiosity, uh, inventiveness, imagination, and so on. Um, and so, you know, that's where I would encourage more and more families to sort of move into thinking about unschooling and self-directed education, allowing a child's interests and passions to sort of guide their learning without a coercion 
course of curriculum or standardized approach to learning, uh, and then surround them with resources and opportunities uh, to, to be able to explore their world successfully. Uh, and so in my unschooled book, that's a lot of what I talk about, not only the sort of the theory and philosophy of, of, of unschooling and self-directed education, but also the ways in which that looks in, in practice. So I, you know, traveled around the country to various self-directed learning centers and unschooling schools like the Sudbury model of schooling um, that really do um, try to cultivate self-directed education and allow young people to live freely and learn freely uh, throughout their days. So that's sort of the one piece and kind of the contrast between not only kind of government schooling and coercive schooling, but self-directed education as the antidote to that. And then I think you said you wanted to get into sort of the history of compulsory schooling. Um, and I have a whole chapter in Unschool that goes through kind of the history of compulsory education. And it began in the colonies uh, dating back to the 1640s, not long after the pilgrims settled in Massachusetts Bay Colony. And the colonists there passed the uh, country's first compulsory education law, and that essentially established a state interest in an educated citizenry. But the compulsion at the time was on um, cities and towns to provide educational resources for families that wanted to take advantage of that. So uh, it, a smaller town had to hire a teacher uh, for any families that wanted to take advantage of that teacher. For a larger town of, say, over 100 people, they had to open and operate a grammar school. And these laws were were often ignored uh, in the early colonies that they weren't, you know, heavily enforced. But there was this sense that, you know, if education was a priority and if there was going to be some form of compulsion, that that compulsion really had to be on uh, the municipality to provide educational resources but not on parents to take advantage of those resources. And in fact, uh, homeschooling was the default. There was a clear expectation that, that parents were the ones who were ultimately responsible for their children's education. And there were a whole host of ways that parents could execute that education, whether it was parents teaching their children or hiring tutors or sending their child next door to what were known as dame schools, which were like little nursery schools in your neighbor's kitchen. Um, there was an assortment of private schools and charity schools for the poor, of course, and a, a growth of these kind of public schools that were offered by municipalities. Apprenticeship programs were, of course, um, the norm. And that was that was kind of the the key pathway to adulthood for young people um, moving on in, in their adolescence. And so all of that kind of variety and diversity of education options really became narrowed into a public school classroom beginning in the mid-19th century. Again, Massachusetts leading the way in compulsion, passing the state's um, first compulsory schooling statute in 1852, led by Horace Mann, who's considered the architect of American public education. And for the first time, parents were expected to send their children to school under a legal threat of force. So the compulsion really shifted from compelling cities and towns to provide educational resources to instead compelling parents to send their children to these common schools. And I go through in the book in, in great detail kind of how these compulsory schooling statutes came to be. 
A lot of it had to do with a, a strong anti-immigrant sentiment that occurred uh, in the early uh, to mid 19th century, particularly in places like Massachusetts and in Boston. The uh, population of Boston, for example, doubled between 1820 and 1840. And a lot of these immigrants were Irish Catholic immigrants that were escaping the potato famine and coming to the United States with different cultural mores and social norms. And this really challenged the kind of Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethos of the time. And so you had Massachusetts legislators saying, you know, we have to, um, you know, essentially institutionalize these immigrant children so that they assimilate into our Anglo-Saxon Protestant norms. In fact, the Massachusetts legislature, just prior to passing uh, the first compulsory schooling statute, said, quote, those pouring in upon us in masses of thousands upon thousands are wholly of another kind in morals and intellect end quote. And so then they passed the compulsory schooling statute right after that. So it was a really strong anti-immigrant sentiment that led to the, uh, the development of compulsory public schooling and common schools, as they were known, that were purportedly secular, but that had the King James version of the Bible and had Protestant teachers and other Protestant texts. So for all intents and purposes, they were reflecting this kind of larger um, uh, you know, kind of culture at the time and were, um, you know, essentially trying to assimilate these Irish Catholic immigrants. And so interestingly, the uh, Irish Catholic immigrants rebelled and said, well, we're not sending our kids to these schools. So they created their own parallel system of parochial schools, of Catholic schools that, of course, thro flourished throughout the late 19th century. And then kind of fast forward to the early part of the 20th century, uh, education reformers didn't like the fact that there was private schooling, and in, in, in that case, mostly kind of Catholic schooling. And so the state of Oregon um, prohibited attendance at private schools, uh, essentially abolishing private education. And thankfully, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in the landmark case Pierce versus the Society of Sisters in 1925 struck down that Oregon law as saying that the child is not the mere creature of the state. And so private education was preserved. And um, unfortunately, you know, compulsory schooling expanded during the 20th century, kind of extending into later adolescence and moving into younger and younger ages and really taking up much more of American childhood. Um, but I think there's such a promise now in the 21st century of moving back toward um, this kind of diversely offered and diversely um, um, Assort, diverse assortment of education options with the creation of micro schools and the kind of homeschooling revolution that's uh, taken off over the past couple of years and just many more um, private education options. And in addition to kind of the expansion of school choice policies throughout the U.S. that's really accelerated over the past couple of years that allows education funding to follow students instead of going to school systems. And so, you know, I think it's a, a wonderful moment now for us to um, really encourage and embrace uh, an, a free market of education options and parental empowerment that's driving that. Super, super exciting, all the innovation and stuff that's taking place and all the different options there are for children, whether it's private school, homeschool, or unschool and, and self-directed education. Um, 
You know, I've been an activist, a liberty activist for 20 years now. And one of the things I realized is that it's, it's quite the challenge because I, I actually stopped spending so much energy trying to wake up the masses or I don't do the voting politics thing anymore either because it's, I think the large, the lot of people, they just want to go along to get along and they've been conditioned to just accept arbitrary authority, right? So there's this understanding amongst the general public that if the government says so, then it's necessarily something we must do. Or oftentimes, you know, libertarians understand there's a difference between what's legal and illegal and what's right and wrong, right? Can you kind of talk about, because one of the things I came to realize is like the government schools are perhaps one of the biggest institutions, one of the largest reasons why there's so many people that struggle so much to understand self-ownership, non-aggression, uh, the relationship that we ought to have with other people and with institutions and with government. So can you maybe talk about some of the role that government school has played, if you share this opinion, which I imagine you do, uh, in kind of indoctrinating people just to accept the art arbitrary edicts of the state? Yeah, I mean, that is the essence of government schooling. It's a political institution. Uh, you know, we see, for example, over the past uh, couple of years, a lot of battles at school boards and in state legislatures over various curriculum doctrines, the kind of uh, battle over critical race theory or critical gender theory in schools and so on. And it, it just points out the fact that government schooling is inherently political. It creates a battle of political wills where uh, groups of people are forced to fight uh, to have their worldview, their ideology um, be what is accepted and embraced in that political institution that we call government schooling. Uh, and so the key is to uh, move away from government schooling, and then a lot of those battles will disappear. Um, my colleague at the Cato Institute, Neil McCluskey, um, who runs the Center for Educational Freedom at Cato, keeps a political, uh, sorry, a public schooling battle map which is an actual interactive map that points out all of these political battles that are happening in schools and school districts across the country, simply because these are groups of people who are forced to fight for what they want in those classrooms that may be very much opposed, where another group may be very much opposed to that. And so it again, creates these winners and losers. And the only way to, um, to prevent that conflict and prevent those battles is to move away from government schooling and this political institution towards private enterprise and allowing parents to freely choose how and where and with whom their children are educated. Um, and so that's, you know, I think hopefully where we're moving and certainly something that parents have been able to see over the past couple of years, beginning in the spring of 2020 with Zoom schooling, where they, in many cases, saw for the first time what was actually happening in their children's schools and didn't like that and decided to take matters in their own hands, particularly with prolonged school closures that led families to say, well, we have to do something different because clearly uh, the schools aren't being responsive to our needs. And so that's why you saw this explosion in the homeschooling rate and a lot of these pandemic pods, kind of these parent-driven co-ops emerge. 
that in many cases now have evolved into full-fledged microschools with hired teachers and, and, you know, leased commercial spaces and so on. So there is that shift, I think, uh, towards private enterprise. And I think we'll see the heat really go down if that continues to happen, because when people are able to choose freely and not have to feel that they have to fight a political battle in order to get their way, uh, it will diffuse a lot of that conflict and tension. Yeah. I, um, I know I'm excited that school choice seems to be picking up some momentum in the state of Texas. Although, like I said, I don't do the political thing, but that's something that if other people want to push and if it gets passed, I would definitely benefit because we just bought a 10 acre homestead and the property taxes are, are pretty exorbitant. And when you actually go look at the breakdown, most of it is going to the school district and my kids don't even go there. They do a two day co-op uh, that they really like, and there's a bunch of other families involved, but it's it's lacking resources. And I would much rather divert those thousands of dollars to this to this pri this little homeschool thing that we're doing. But I think that's one of the challenges as well, because people are forced to participate, and their tax dollars go to fund and subsidize something. Then uh, they feel like they're vested; they have a stake, especially if their kids are going. Let me ask you this: In your experience, what are some of the challenges that parents who want to homeschool or unschool, or at least who want to pull their kids out of government school, what are some of the challenges that they face? And in your experience, are there any tools, strategies, any educational philosophies that could help them to overcome those challenges and make the leap out of government school into one of these alternatives? Yeah, so I'll just kind of share some of the statistics. So um, in the 2020-2021 uh, academic year, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of homeschooled children uh, more than doubled and represented over 11% of the U.S. K-12 school-age population were being homeschooled. That was a, a more than tripling from pre-pandemic levels when the U.S. Department of Education most recently counted homeschoolers. It was about just under 3.5%, so a jump uh, in from 2016 of 3.5% to then um, a real explosion in numbers from the fall of, excuse me, spring of 2020 to the fall of 2020 um, to that more than 11% of, of school children being homeschooled in the U.S. And a lot of that growth was being driven by Black homeschooling mm -hmm. families that experienced a five-fold increase in homeschooling rates from the spring of 2020 to the fall of 2020 and became overrepresented in the homeschool population compared to Black student representation in the overall K-12 school population, public school population. Um, so that was just kind of a breathtaking change. And I think a lot of people expected that that would just be a blip from the for the 2020-2021 academic year with these prolonged school closures and continued, you know, COVID policies. And, uh, you know, a lot of commentators suspected that that would all go back to normal as schools reopened for full-time in-person learning this past fall, fall of 2021. And that simply didn't happen. The homeschooling rate fell slightly. Uh, the Associated Press reporting that the homeschooling rate fell by about 17% um, from an increase of more than 60% the previous academic year. So a slight dip, but nothing comparable to kind of pre-pandemic levels. And it really, I think, speaks to this sense of parent empowerment, of parents realizing for the first time what their kids were or were not learning in, in government schools, and then recognizing that there were these other options and that homeschooling uh, has really uh, changed. Maybe, you know, it's not that kind of stereotypical vision that I think a lot of um, 
families might have had or parents might have suspected where it's, you know, this idea that you have a parent, typically a mom sitting around a kitchen table with a, a textbook and a curriculum and teaching their kids. You know, I don't think that that's been the case for most homeschoolers in the 21st century and certainly hasn't been the case over the past several years uh, as there has been this proliferation of learning centers and microschools and learning pods that are typically facilitated by uh, hired educators and have kind of groups of children that get together to explore their interests. And even though sometimes these have curriculum associated with them, um, they typically tend to be more free and less coercive than, uh, than a conventional classroom would be. And so I think that's what's really been exciting is that the key barrier, I think, to more families choosing homeschooling was this... Um, misunderstanding of what it could be, that it's not sort of this solitary experience of, um, you know, one's family around a kitchen table, but that it's a much more social experience that's embedded in one's community and that has the, the these, um, you know, various uh, schooling alternatives available to families. And so some of these micro schools, and especially the ones that have continued kind of post-pandemic that maybe have be, may have begun as a pandemic pod, but that have uh, evolved into a, a full-fledged microschool serving dozens of children, um, these programs often uh, enable families to attend either part-time, you know, a couple of days a week where they can drop off their kids uh, to have some instruction or socializing, or uh, up to five days a week as a true full-time schooling alternative. And it's important to note that these kinds of microschools and pods are typically a small fraction of the cost of a, a, a typical private school in a given location. So they're already, in that sense, much more accessible to more families because of their low cost. And then if you add into that uh, some of these school choice policies that have, are being passed in states across the country, I think of uh, most recently the landmark school choice uh, bill that was passed in Arizona just a couple of weeks ago that creates for the first time a universal education savings account for all uh, K-12 students in the state of Arizona to use 90% of their state allocated per pupil funding toward whatever education options they want, which works out to about $7,000 per student per year, that that family you know, could use that money to go towards one of these pods or hybrid schools or micro schools, uh, which again, typically are cost about that much uh, in total. So it, it really is a game changer in that way. Yeah, I love to hear that about Arizona. And um, it's really, a, there's just everything comes back to economics so much. So that money and that money not being available for people to choose to allocate and express a preference in a, in a, in a market sense, uh, it really mixes and, and muddies things up. And then on the flip side as well, oftentimes parents are struggling these days because of inflation and the Federal Reserve and the income tax and difficulties running a business and being more independent. And they feel the need to send their kids to government school because not only does it allegedly serve the function of educating the kids of, of a nation, but it also is a babysitting opportunity, a childcare opportunity for both parents that are working. And I find that is one of the big struggles for folks, but there are lots of opportunities. All right. So let's talk more about some of these alternatives that are available. You're talking about micro schools and pods, but first, can we first start, if you could differentiate between unschooling 
how you define that, because there's a lot, a lot of people define it in multiple different ways. Uh, and then more of a curriculum led learning, because as you said earlier, kid parents can take their kids out of government school and it doesn't necessarily have to be seated at the table going through a curriculum step by step, although it could be that. So can you maybe go a little bit deeper on what it is when you're talking about self-directed education and how that would contrast with having an education directed by a parent specifically or directed by a curriculum? Yeah, so self-directed education or unschooling is just one uh, method of education, one educational philosophy or approach similar to Montessori or Waldorf or classical education. It's just one um, one education option for families to choose from, but it focuses on the individual child, uh, kind of individual self-determination and autonomy, and allowing a children's interests and passions to emerge and develop, and then connecting those interests and passions with available resources, both community-wide resources, as well as um, increasingly these online resources that are so abundant and typically free or low cost um, to be able to learn anything we want. And so that is what how I define unschooling as sort of this disentangling education from schooling and really looking at the individual learner as sovereign and how can we support that individual's kind of personal development and flourishing. Uh, and so in my unschooled book, again, I focus on unschooling as either a method of homeschooling that doesn't replicate school at home, that doesn't use a packaged curriculum that's imposed by the by the family. It could use curriculum if that's what the child wants. Um, so I often give the example of my older daughter who was very interested in learning Korean language and culture because she was um, and is still very much involved in martial arts and recently got her black belt in martial arts. But it was from that martial arts experience that she became interested in Korean language and culture and wanted to learn Korean. And so we started with Duolingo, which is a free online learning uh, software program that has all kinds of different languages to choose from. So she started there and really liked it, but wanted something a bit more rigorous. And so I was able to connect her kind of just through a, a, a citywide community message board to a native South Korean speaker who she met with several times a week uh, and went through kind of a formal curriculum. And she had assignments and she had, um, you know, work that she had to had to complete. And so that's an example of where you can use a, a standard kind of traditional curriculum and traditional methods of instruction in an unschooling environment, but that it's uh, completely self-chosen in much the same way that we adults learn things, right? That someone isn't telling us um, that we have to learn this particular um, skill. We are choosing to do that in pursuit of some goal, uh, personal or professional goal. Uh, and so the same is true for unschooling with children and, and really providing them with that same kind of respect and, and opportunity for individual choice and agency. And so that is kind of what unschooling is. And then it's supported not only through as a method of homeschooling, but also through these self-directed learning centers or unschooling schools like the Sudbury model of schooling, which is modeled after the Sudbury Valley School uh, in Massachusetts that was founded in 1968 and then really um, has led to dozens of Sudbury style schools across the country that are, you know, kind of five day a week um, schools private schools, but that, uh, you know, there are no required classes, there are no, um, there is, there's no curriculum, <laughs> there are no, um, you know, teachers kind of 
um, operating as a traditional instructor, um, you know, learning only happens or conventional learning, traditional learning only happens if young people want to learn something, again, in this much the same way that adults would would want to learn something. So uh, so we see more and more of that becoming um, an interest to parents. And then, of course, you have these these variety of other ways that that children can learn outside of a government school that could either be self-directed or could be um, following one of these other educational philosophies or approaches. If you're just joining us, we are chatting with Carrie McDonald. She's with the Foundation for Economic Education, an old school libertarian think tank. She's also uh, the author of Unschooling, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom, and just started a new podcast called The Liberated Podcast. And that's the ED as an education. Very clever what you did there. Um, let's talk about this whole micro school phenomenon, because one of the challenges and one of the hurdles that parents believe uh, they have for pulling their kids out of government school is that they'll have to do it all alone. And earlier I mentioned a family where both parents perhaps are working or even a single parent, single mom or single dad. That's definitely probably extremely challenging for parents in general, let alone for helping the kids through education. But it doesn't have to be something that you do on your own. And oftentimes there's that old cliche that it takes a village. So can you talk about the rise of homeschool pods, which was like a COVID phenomenon, but now we have these micro schools and basically families coming together to support one another and give their children what they believe to be a better education. Yeah. So I'll say that the micro school movement was really gaining traction pre-2020. You had fast growing micro school networks such as Prenda, which is an Arizona-based um, microschool movement, kind of home-based microschools with small groups of children, maybe a dozen multi-age children, um, and a guide, an adult facilitator that would lead a, a curriculum. Um, and you also had Acton Academy, which is a, a similar kind of fast-growing national network of microschools that, again, would take place either in an individual's home, uh, serving the community, or in a um, leased commercial space. So that was already happening. And then the education disruption over the past couple of years really accelerated that trend. And I think, uh, you know, maybe a good example is to share the story of my first podcast guest, Jill Perez, who came on my podcast when I launched it this past February. Um, Jill was uh, started her career as a certified uh, public school teacher, taught in public schools, um, you know, for about 20 years, more recently shifted towards higher education, where she was a supervisor of student teachers at the university level. And then when COVID hit, uh, she pulled her kids out of school and created a pandemic pod with other families that, you know, weren't happy with remote learning or when schools reopened, didn't want their kids wearing masks in schools. And so she teamed up with some other like-minded families and they just sort of took turns leading a curriculum and having the kids get together throughout the week. It's sort of this kind of modern twist on a time-honored homeschool co-op, but we called them pandemic pods. Uh, and then that was so successful and she found so many families interested in what she was doing and, and excited by, um, by this new learning model that she was creating, that she decided to create an actual microschool. So she leased um, a commercial space this past fall. She's based in New Jersey and uh, ended up with 40 kids <laughs> this past uh, September who were recognized as homeschoolers. So they would 
parents would pull their kids out of school and uh, identify as homeschoolers, and they would send their kids to this micro school, uh, which is called the Tranquil Teachings Learning Center, either part time a couple of days a week, again, for kind of one off classes or socializing, or five days a week if they wanted a full time schooling alternative, because as you said, there could be single parents or two working parents or the child just wants more uh, time away and have that kind of five-day-a-week option at a fraction of the cost of typical private schools. Um, one of the things that Jill said was really intriguing is that a lot of, um, she, she ended up recruiting a lot of teachers from New York, uh, who teachers who did not want to comply with various COVID policies in their schools. And so she happily recruited them into her micro school. And she said in the podcast, you know, these are my thinking teachers. These are educators who are questioning, who are challenging um, the norm and are really uh, wondering, you know, and, and exploring um, questions that matter to us today. And so she was thrilled to bring them on. And even though they weren't making the same salary that they would, say, in the New York City public schools, they traded that for increased freedom and flexibility in their workspace. And we see a lot of teachers doing the same thing either joining micro schools or launching their own micro schools and finding a lot of personal and professional fulfillment in that process. Um, and so just to kind of wrap up Jill's story, she uh, the, the micro school has been so successful that she ended up purchasing a building uh, earlier this year and continues to expand. So that is a, an example of what I mean by these um, kind of pandemic pods that turn into micro schools that often have um, multi-age groups of children meeting either part-time or full-time, typically with hired educators. Right on. Can you talk about, so there's, there's a movement now that predated COVID, and I think a lot of it has to do with people just recognizing, like I was sharing before, that these institutions are kind of failing and there's more awareness and understanding and people are more connected. Um, but there's always this struggle between the state and freedom, right? Control and freedom. And so more people are exploring alternatives, private schools, homeschooling, unschooling, the rise of micro schools that are turning into almost private schools. But there's always a pushback and resistance in the form of teachers unions, right? Or overzealous lawmakers. So what can you talk about the forces that are maybe trying to slow down this progress and this innovation in the education space? Because obviously, especially when the lawmakers and legislators are passing school choice, it's a threat to government schools and their funding. Um, and that's the big problem with a lot of state institutions is they just exist no matter what quality of service they provide because they are funded by compulsory taxation. But can you kind of talk about this, the struggle that's taking place and where the pushback is coming? Yeah, I mean, I think that the teachers unions certainly overplayed their hand uh, in 2020 and 2021. They worked to keep schools closed, and that really angered parents who, uh, you know, began to really see the power that teachers unions wield and their very clear uh, political bent towards the political left. And that was something I think a lot of parents never really realized until school shutdowns and um, prolonged COVID policies in these district schools. So uh, I think in that sense, they're, they're weakened just in terms of parents being aware of their power and influence and not liking that. And you do see as a result of that, taxpayer support for school choice policies, again, 
and these programs that allow education funding, taxpayer funding of education to go directly to families as opposed to going to these school districts uh, at record high levels, near uh, three quarters of U.S. taxpayers now support school choice policies, uh, according to most recent polling. And that is the highest level it's ever been. And so you're seeing uh, states really respond to that by introducing or expanding school choice legislation. So as much as teachers unions uh, and you know government officials might want to push back against some of this innovation and uh, and freedom for families. The trend, thankfully, has been um, towards more deregulation and expansion of education choice and freedom. I think, again, of Arizona's recent landmark education savings account bill. Um, I also actually really like West Virginia's recent bills. Not only did they have pass a, a nearly universal education savings account bill last year, but this spring, they um, recognized learning pods and microschools as legitimate education options for families. And the way they did that was by loosening compulsory school attendance laws in the state of West Virginia to say that if students participate in one of these learning pods or microschools that are very decentralized and uh, kind of informally defined, they are exempt from compulsory school attendance laws. And that's really the direction that I think we need to be going. Certainly as libertarians, we need to be going in that direction, that school choice is, a, is an initial step and it's an important step in terms of uh, getting taxpayer money back to families and kind of uh, limiting the role of government in education, but it's really not the final step. And really, we need to move towards um, loosening and ultimately eliminating compulsory schooling laws that would then break the stranglehold of government power on education. Right on. It reminds me of the uh, cannabis reform. It's like on one hand, you legalize and the government still gets all their grubby fingers all over it, or you could decriminalize and just take away the prohibition in the first place. Okay, cool. Um, can you talk about the unschooled or homeschooled adult? Uh, how, cause I noticed like, so my kids are unschooled and homeschooled and they have different understandings of the world and they interact with adults differently than I notice in a lot of kiddos that spent their entire life in a government school. There's a different relationship with authority, I believe. Um, so have you, in your experience, or maybe with your own children, um, come to find that there's certain qualities or characteristics that you might find in common with homeschool kids compared to kids that have been in government schools their whole lives? Yeah, so I can give three pieces of uh, research. Um, the first comes from Daniel Hamlin at the University of Oklahoma, who researched homeschoolers and public school students and found that homeschoolers have a much higher rate of what he calls cultural capital. So the homeschooled students are more likely, often um, two to three times more likely than their public school peers to go to a library, a museum, an aquarium, a historic site, a cultural event, some other kind of community wide program than their public school peers. So there is this sense that homeschoolers, you know, are actually quite authentically immersed uh, in their communities um, in, in many ways more so than their public school students uh, who are, you know, stuck in these kind of age segregated standardized classrooms all day. Um, so there's that piece of information. Then Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation did a literature review 
uh, looking at academic outcomes of homeschooled students um, and found, you know, positive academic outcomes from all of the kind of literature that she reviewed for this study. Uh, so again, kind of showing that homeschoolers are doing well and in many cases outperforming their peers uh, that are in a conventional classroom. And then the final piece of research I'll share that I talk a lot about in my unschooled book it comes from um, Peter Gray, who is a Boston College psychology professor. He also wrote the foreword to my unschooled book and has his own book called Free to Learn. He's done quite a bit of research on unschooling and self-directed education in a whole variety of settings from, again, kind of home-based unschooling or unschooling as an approach to homeschooling, as well as in these uh, unschooling schools like the Sudbury model. And he found in a um, survey of grown unschoolers, these were people that were kind of doing unschooling as a form of homeschooling, that they had no trouble uh, going on to higher education if that's what they chose to do. Um, they had no trouble performing well academically, even if they didn't take formal classes uh, in childhood. Many of them um, would take community college classes in adolescence uh, if, that, if they were interested in going on to higher education, and they did just fine. Uh, and then one of the, the great pieces of insight that came from his survey was that he found that more than half of the grown unschoolers were working as entrepreneurs in fields that were connected to interests that they developed uh, in childhood or adolescence. I love to hear that. And it resonates with me for, for my kiddos. You know, one thing I think parents struggle with often, especially homeschooling or unschooling, is, um, you know, are my kids at the level that they need to be, right? And that level that is often compared to is the government school education. But I always, you know, I got to catch myself. And a lot of it has to do with like, what are the nephews are doing and what are fa the family think? Because a lot of families are more traditional when it comes to what they expect for education. But, you know, it's not really, in, in my opinion, what constitutes success is the quality of life for the child. Are they happy? Are they healthy? Are they fulfilled? Right. And whether it's an academic thing or compared to the government school kiddos, I, I often think too, like there's a lot of opportunity for the kids to follow their interests. And for me as a parent, this is one of the benefits of homeschooling and unschooling is I have a better role in instilling the values and principles that I find to be important. And so one of the things that's extremely important to me as an entrepreneur is uh, helping my kiddos to understand sales skills and communication skills and persuasion and even marketing. So they come to us to events and festivals and conferences that we do, and they do a little booth and they sell stuff. And I think that's really, really pretty cool. So can you maybe talk about how, because you talked about the, the origins of compulsory education and a piece of that was to create cogs, essentially factory workers, folks that'll help increase this economic success of the U S industrial revolution. At least that's my understanding but now things are changed. The economy has changed and entrepreneurship is so much more of a good thing these days and the self-directed and the innovation and the internet and communication and self-starters. And we're kind of seeing after COVID, there was like with all the lockdowns, of course, small business got hurt really bad and Walmart was open and Amazon, of course. But then at the same time, there's a throwback, 
right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So people are now yearning for that personal connection for doing business with someone that knows their name where they can make, get a phone call and have a human being on the other end. So can you share in your view, do you believe homeschooling, unschooling, these new innovative forms of education, which many of them aren't new at all, actually, it's like a throwback, how that could perhaps better serve children entering the new economy? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we have a dominant system of compulsory schooling that dates back to the 19th century that really reflected kind of the industrial revolution at the time. It was these were kind of considered novel, innovative approaches. You know, we think of the assembly line as being very archaic, but at the time it was avant-garde. And so schooling really reflected that kind of larger industrial movement. Um and now we're just not in that same place. And yet we have a, a schooling system that still, um, you know, values c obedience and compliance and conformity over originality and creativity and curiosity. Uh, and I think more, more and more parents are waking up to that. I mean, I think another piece that's really important is that it used to be that you went to school because that's where the teachers were. That's where the knowledge was. That was where the books were. Um, and now, of course, that's all around us. So I really think it's technology that is driving this education transformation and, and education entrepreneurship that's really opening up more possibilities for learning. Uh, and again, much the same way that, that adults today learn. You know, if we want to learn something new, we often go on YouTube uh, or, you know, find something online that will help us to um, do learn or do something better. And that same strategy can be used for young people as well. And so I think it's really recognizing that now we have access to so much incredible curriculum and resources and learning tools and educators, right, that we can uh, choose who we learn from. And if we don't like a particular instructor on YouTube or some other kind of online program, we can just choose another one and we can find the best ones um, worldwide. And so that's just such an exciting moment. And I think it really will lead to this continued decentralization of education and lead to a lot more of these kind of uh, free market education solutions that that are emerging now and will continue to emerge. Right on. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, before we let you go, is there any bit of advice that you might give to parents that want to pull their kids out of government school, but may be struggling to figure out how to do it? And, and there's always this there's this Malcolm X quote that I often share. Uh, he said, only a fool would let his enemy educate his children. So, of course, for libertarians, our enemy is the state. Um, but a lot of parents recognize that they feel it. They're not happy with government schools, but they're struggling to make that transition for one reason or another. What advice in general would you give to one of those families? Yeah, you know, I think. Um, families may be unaware at what is available around them, particularly with this uh, surge in these learning pods and micro schools that in many cases are quite new and growing and looking for families. And so they may be surprised at what's actually available to them at a price that's accessible. So I often recommend connecting with homeschooling groups in one's particular area, whether that's on social media or through kind of community networks, mm -hmm. um, and also find those 
those community networks or social media groups that might have more freedom oriented families in them. So, you know, you still have kind of conventional homeschooling groups, but look at those who are kind of for medical freedom or kind of more liberty leaning uh, in their focus. And then I think there you'll find a lot of access to these micro schools and learning pods and other kinds of education innovations. Um, so that would be one thing. And then and then I would I also say to families that, you know, if you can't find one of these programs, then build it. You know, now is a great time to be an education entrepreneur. And a lot of these innovative new K-12 learning models are coming from parents who simply aren't satisfied with what's available to them and want to build something different. Awesome. Just get out and build it. Excellent. Cool. Okay. Um, can you share with the audience how they can follow you, uh, the website again for your podcast? And of course, uh, Carrie will be presenting at the Live Free Academy Free the Children Homeschool Summit. You can register for free. It's taking place July 14th. That's livefree.academy slash free the children, livefree.academy slash free the children. But if you want to keep up with Carrie's work in the meantime or dig deeper on everything she's offering, if you'll share some of those websites with us. Sure. You can find uh, my writing, links to my articles. Uh, send me an email at the Foundation for Economic Education. That's fee.org slash Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y. Uh, you can find my podcast wherever you get your podcast or go to liberatedpodcast.com and follow me on Twitter at Kerry underscore E-D-U. Awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and I very much look forward to uh, your presentation at the Free the Children Homeschool Summit. Thank you so much. Thanks. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. All right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. This has been yet another Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Don't forget, mark it on your calendar, July 14th. That's July 14th. You can register for free. We're going to start at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, Central Daylight Time. Uh, and you can go, again, to livefree.academy slash free the children. That's livefree.academy slash free the children. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or better yet, subscribe on Odyssey, blockchain-based, decentralized. And shout out to the folks that are watching uh, as we stream to the Conscious Resistance Network. All right, this is John Bush. Peace and freedom. I'm out. Thanks. Bye.